Hi, you're listening to The Drip, a podcast about how to caffeinate your campaigns. Today, we're joined by Susan Schmidt Winchester. Susan is the Chief Human Resources Officer at Applied Materials, and we talk about strategies to navigate workplace conflict and how to best communicate your company's culture. In just a moment, you'll hear Susan speak candidly and personally about adult survivors of a damaged past and how she's channeled that into her work. There are a bunch of ways to communicate at work and about work. Everyone sends emails. Videos are pervasive. Susan wrote a book, but I think that you'll agree with me. There's an authenticity to how Susan speaks that's elevated by this being only in audio. No visual bias. No memo that went through three rounds of edit just a human being talking about her experiences and how it's shaped her. In the conversations that I have, the question of how do I scale across time zones and locations while remaining authentic and people first is the question that the great leaders are most grappling with. For business leaders that are looking to marry effective asynchronous communications with authenticity, creating internal audio content is proving to be the most efficient and scalable format out there. If you're curious about how audio can be used by people teams, email me directly at brian at venly.co. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, dot C-O. And now, the amazing Susan Schmidt Winchester. Hi, Susan. How are you this morning, Brian? Susan Schmidt-Winchester is the Senior Vice President, Chief Human Resources Officer for Applied Materials, a Fortune 200 Silicon Valley company, and it's more than 24,000 global employees. She has more than 30 years of experience in HR, providing executive leadership, most recently as Head of HR for Rockwell Automation, and prior to that in multiple leadership roles for the Keller Company. Susan is also the author of the book, which we're about to talk about, Healing at Work, a guide to using career conflicts to overcome your past and build the future you deserve with Martha I. Finney. Susan is a fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources, the highest professional honor for leaders in HR. She serves as a board member for the HR Policy Association and on the executive committee of the Peer Roundtable for CHROs. She is vice chair, leadership advisory board to the Dean of Engineering, College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. And she is a member of the Forbes HR Council. Susan, thank you again. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So let's talk about your book. We just read it uh, a moment ago, but it's called Healing at Work, A Guide to Using Career Conflicts to Overcome Your Past and Build the Future You Deserve. It was recently published. What was your inspiration in writing this book and what do you hope your readers take away from it? Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. The inspiration for the book was really based on two things, uh, my own journey and my career. And also having the privilege to work with and, and partner with many executives and professionals uh, that, I, that I've been a part of in terms of the companies I've been um, in. And so from my own standpoint, what I, I experienced for a majority of my career was a lot of success, a lot of achievements. You know, the, I'm, I'm really proud of that. But underneath those achievements was really uh, underlying belief that I wasn't good enough and that in order to prove myself, I had to constantly be striving to, to meet the next objective, to deliver the next accomplishment. And so in doing that, you know, when you're, when you're coming from a place, and frankly, it was unconscious for many years of not truly believing that I was capable. I, I took some messages away from my childhood that weren't necessarily helpful. And the downside of those beliefs driving a, a career of success 
is a feeling of, of, of beating oneself up after the end of the day. If you feel like you've um, uh, done something during the day, when I felt like I didn't do something or should have said something, um, I would go home and, and ruminate over and over about what I could have done differently. So uh, a lot of stress and frankly, a lot of suffering and uh, sadness underneath of all those accomplishments. The other thing also, and this is true for a lot of overachievers, perfectionists, and people pleasers like me, is that we end up being workaholics. We work all the time because we feel like we get our sense of validation from others through the workplace. And that has a huge impact on our families and the people that we love outside of work. And so in my own family, I felt as my kids were growing up that I, I don't think I was very present. I was always focused on what was happening at work. What was I doing? What was I not doing? All this ruminating and stress and anxiety. And, and, and frankly, it led to, um, I won't even say it led to, but it certainly made it worse. People that fall into this category like me often use different unhealthy behaviors or activities to make ourselves feel better. So mine was using Chardonnay to a point where it was, it was too much. And I'm really lucky. I'm, I'm fortunate. I've been sober for 17 years, but there are a lot of unhealthy habits that get picked up too much drinking, too much eating, too much shopping, too much working. And so the inspiration for the book was as I continued on in my journey, and I can tell you some stories along that path, it was, it was not fun. <laughs> it was not a fun place to be. And then I started to notice my colleagues also feeling some of these same kinds of feelings in the world of the corporate environment. There are a lot of perfectionists and people pleasers and overachievers and amazing people. But underneath of it is it's being motivated by these negative beliefs about ourselves, hoping and thinking that somehow people, especially our bosses, are going to validate us in the workplace. And it was through that journey that I realized that I had some lessons to share. And, uh, and also, I can't give enough credit to my co-author, Martha Finney, who took my original manuscript and made it so much more um, valuable, research-driven. And, um, and the concept of healing at work came from that partnership. So I'll stop there. I feel like I'm rambling. I think I need some more coffee to get going here. But um, the inspiration was, how can I help other people in their careers have a much more joyful experience? And, and really move from what I call the unconscious wounded career path onto the conscious healing career path. Yeah, I, I love how it's part professional leadership, part self-help, right? It's a very potent mixture um, yes. and very unique to the space. You, you talk a lot about adult survivors of a damaged past. You, you just touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about what ASDPs? Yes. What is it and why? what are the implications for those that fit the description as they navigate their careers? Right. So uh, what the research shows, and, and I didn't know this until the, the partnership with Martha, with a lot of the research that we did, is that two thirds of adults in America and other countries as well, two thirds of us have experienced one or more trauma uh, in our childhood before the age 18. In fact, there's a, a lot of terrific research uh, organization Kaiser Permanente did several years ago, where they asked 17,000 adults if they had experienced one of what they call the adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs. And the ACEs include, I'm not going to remember them all, but the ACEs include things like physical, sexual, emotional abuse, um, neglect, addiction in the family, mental illness in the family, mother treated violently or badly, divorce. There, there's a series of these adverse childhood experiences. And what they discovered was that two thirds of the people said they'd experienced one of those 10 ACEs. 
sadly, 40% experience two or more, and almost 13% of us experience four or more. And so essentially what that means is many of us, 66% of people have experienced something negative in their childhood. And as a result of growing up in a stressful environment, we naturally, our brains manage the situation. We learn certain techniques to try to create a sense of security. And I think it's really important that, you know, this isn't about blaming parents. I, I don't come from that place at all. And I think parents do the very best they can. They have their own hurts and pains. And many of them are also from damaged past. But it's thinking about the degree of dysfunction that we grow up in. And then how does that shape our brains? How do we manage those situations? What beliefs do we take away about ourselves that aren't always necessarily helpful? Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I can't do anything right. I'm worthless. All these different things that can occur that we carry with us. We get into our professional lives and we think we've less left the path behind. And all of a sudden at work, we find ourselves getting triggered. We, we have these strong, potentially sometimes negative emotional reactions to other place, people in the workplace. So an ASDP is somebody who grew up in a childhood where there was some element of dysfunction. The ACEs are the extreme, but a damaged past could also include an overly bearing, an overbearing critical parent where no matter what we do, we never feel like it's measuring up to what their expectations are. And, you know, us ASDPs show up at the workplace thinking everything's great, but then our brains respond. For me, you know, this belief that I wasn't good enough in the eyes of my dad manifested into managing my environment through perfectionism and people pleasing, always being on guard and always assuming that if somebody was mad or unhappy or disappointed in me, it was my fault and it was my job to fix it. And the other thing, and this is true of a lot of people that come from a, an ASDP background, is that we believe that um, it is up to us to figure out how to fix everything. And so there's a tremendous amount of responsibility and a heaviness that comes with being an ASDP. I will tell you that I never thought about my childhood as being a damaged past. You know, that seemed like such a negative way to describe it. And frankly, I never experienced or thought of the fact that I might have experienced some trauma until I learned more about what trauma is and, and understanding the ACEs and the impact of growing up in an environment that's not always perceived by a child as negative. So ASDPs show up in the workplace, uh, wildly successful in many cases, but again, it's fueled by that underlying belief that somehow it's, it's um, my job to prove myself and please everyone else. And unconsciously, we delegate the responsibility to others, particularly managers, 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 that it's their job to determine whether or not we're good enough. And so we're constantly on this um, quest for the validation that uh, we believe is given by others, which is actually a false belief. Let's talk about the managers for a second. Mm -hmm. Personal experience, I've known when one of uh, my reports is dealing with something in their life, whether you know they have a, a health consideration or someone close to them passed away or there's a divorce or a baby, right? But you don't necessarily know what happened before you met them. Sure, yep. So if we turn this conversation around just a little bit, what are the tools available to managers, to leaders to help support an employee that fits the ASDP profile? Yeah, let me, let me uh, start with a little bit of framing on this and then I'll get into the manager. So- the reality is that, you know, in the workplace, we don't we don't need to talk about someone's past or their childhood. And frankly, as a manager, it's it's these things are private, right? The kinds of things that our employees have experienced are very private and and should be private. 
But as managers, we also have a responsibility to ensure the engagement of our teams, the performance of our teams. And so, you know, you can recognize symptoms. You can't necessarily diagnose. That's not our job as managers, but you can recognize symptoms. So typical symptoms of employees that are managing some of this unconscious past is that they, they're worried a lot. They worry about what people think about them, that there is this, they have this high need to prove themselves. You can feel it. You know, there's certain people you just, they're, they're looking, for, you can feel that they're looking for you to validate or approve of them. I remember a long time ago, somebody, I was in a personal seminar and the facilitator said to me, you wear approval seeker on yourself, like your clothing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, oh my God, is it that obvious? You know, so you can recognize these symptoms, people that never, um, that never celebrate success, that set unrealistic expectations of themselves and others, you know, so it can, the ASTP background can manifest in either the perfectionistic people pleasing way. And in some cases, people adopt more aggressive behaviors. We all know in the world of work that there are corporate bullies, people that are very aggressive or bullying, um, oppositional, argumentative, competitive, winning at all costs and beating everybody else. These are all different strategies that we learn to try to navigate a sense of feeling safe and secure. And so what I'm looking for generally are some extremes in behavior you know, extremes in competitiveness, they got to win at all costs, extremes in people pleasing, like people, people pleasers, you know, get, get perceived sometimes as being competitive with their peers, trying to one up everybody. Uh, people pleasers also can appear to be sucking up. You know, these are just typical things that we see in the workplace. And so as a manager, it's just noticing when someone's behaving in a way that isn't necessarily as productive for the team, that's the place to go. So again, never diving into or trying to diagnose or ask questions about somebody's past. That's not the purpose of this book, but it's more about recognizing when someone's demonstrating some behaviors that may be working against them and then giving them some feedback and finding ways. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, recommending an EAP. That's one potential path, but more around the coaching, the, the performance-based coaching is, you know, when I'm working with someone that I perceive to be a people pleaser, I'll say, you know, it seems like you're trying to please me all the time. And, you know, that, that's not necessarily an image. You, you need to be able to stand up and push back on people. You know, so I had to learn as a people pleaser that to be successful in my role, I had to learn how to not always agree with people. I had to learn how to take on people that might get mad at me. You know, there you have to learn certain techniques to be effective in your roles. And so that's that's where I come from is what are the behaviors that aren't necessarily working for them in the workplace? Um, and, and actually, one of the other topics in the book that we talk about, and I love your I love your focus on communication. And I think that's a key, a key piece of this book, first of all, is how do we communicate with ourselves? right? So we had these internal narratives with this inner critic voice constantly playing. So that's that unconscious wounded career path I talk about. How do we learn how to have a more productive, healthier, conscious healing discussion with ourselves in these moments when we get triggered? And then also the communication with our peers and colleagues in the workplace, right? So as a manager, you want healthy relationships with people in the team. As a manager, I want healthy relationships with my peers and my boss. However, we all know that the workplace is notorious for conflict. And what Martha and I call it um, are bumper car moments. It's like a big crash where two people are kind of floating along at work and all of a sudden they, they collide. And, and sometimes the, the person, one person may not even realize there was a collision, but they did something, said something 
didn't say something that triggered that other person. And then sometimes they actually did or do or say something that triggered that person. And you get this strong emotional reaction. You get a lot of negative energy distraction from the purpose of being at work. And it, it this inability to recognize the bumper car moment is actually a wonderful moment of opportunity to realize we have a different way, we can have a different way of responding. And so the, the book actually facilitates creating healthier, better communications with colleagues. Because what happens right now is when we're unconscious about how we're feeling, if you and I have a conflict and I'm really triggered by something you said, either I feel judged or criticized, or I feel small, and now I feel uh, defensive and resentful, that, that kind of dynamic isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to lend itself well to healthy communications. And so what Martha and I do in the book is actually take the readers through a series of bumper car moments, typical workplace conflicts, and help people look at what's the unconscious uh, wounded career way of thinking in this conflict? And then what's the conscious uh, healing way to think about this conflict? And so we're essentially teaching people how to be more capable communicators, particularly in workplace conflict. I think in a lot of instances where there's workplace conflict, one of the members is this bully. And the bully can sometimes be an incredibly high achiever for all the reasons that you described. They work really hard, they're competitive, they go for it, and they hit the metrics that leadership are looking for from a business output perspective. And yep. it's easy to sit there and say, well, you know, Brian's beating his quota, he's doing all the things, he, you know, we don't have any real issues with him, but he's not particularly well liked by his colleagues. And the reason why is because Brian's not the nicest guy, right? And doesn't treat yep. people with respect. How are you maybe navigating those details and making sure that you're validating the right type of behaviors, even yep. if the person is executing on a day-to-day -day basis against what's being the goals that are being set out for them? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I'll share with you a model that we use at, um, at Applied. And I call it the suitability model. In other words, what really matters when determining whether or not somebody's suitable for a particular role or suitable for a future role? And the model works for any company, any role, whatever. And so it says that there are four things that matter, Brian. And I'm going to get specifically to your question because it's, it, it is specifically around element number three, the third element. So the four categories that matter when determining if someone's capable and effective and suitable to do a role. First one's obvious. We all get it. Skills, knowledge, experience, and education. I have a nickname, which is SKE, S-K-E-E, -E, skills, knowledge, experience, and education. Every role has a set of requirements around skills, knowledge, experience, and education. And that, that one's easy to discern. The second category, which you actually touched on in your example, is called capacity for complexity. And the notion of it is, is that work varies in complexity. And people's ability to manage complexity also varies. And so it, there's a whole model around different levels of, of complexity, work levels of complexity. And so what you were describing is someone who's driving a lot of business results. The, these are individuals that are strong on ski and strong on CFC, capacity for complexity. They create a lot of value for the company. There are, I, I won't go into all the details on the, on the different work levels, but when someone's got a lot of capacity for complexity, what is uh, true about them is they're able to conceptualize farther out in the future. They can anticipate downstream consequences. And, you know, depending on the level you are, you, you might be thinking uh, five to 10 years out. You might be thinking three to five years out. 
but you're, you're able to converge different patterns and trends happening in the internal and external environment to make good business decisions that create value for customers and for the shareholders. That's capacity for complexity. And, and we all know when someone gets over-promoted beyond their level of capability, the, the, the Peter principle. And we also all know when we're in a job and the complexity is too small and we get bored. And so we fill ourselves up with external nonprofit boards, school boards, or whatever. Uh, but that's the second category. The third category, which you're talking about, is known as temperament. And what temperament is, is basically our nature. And we all have pluses and minuses about ourselves, and we all have good days and bad days. But what matters with temperament is the question, is there any extreme or any negative temperament that could impair this person's effectiveness or the effectiveness of others? And so what I typically am looking for is with temperament, is there a pattern is there a frequency and is there intensity of the behavior, the negative behavior? And so it's not uncommon, just like you were describing, where you have someone who's got a lot of ski for their job. They have a ton of capacity. They create a lot of value. People like that often don't realize that not everybody is processing information at the same speed they are. And so they can sometimes come off as judgmental and impatient. Um, some are described as arrogant. That's how the, the code that's given to them. Um, and many times people that are in this category don't even think of it. They just think that people aren't, you know, people just can't keep up. You know, they can see things that other people can't see. But some of the negative elements of temperament that can be problematic. And again, it could be fueled by being an ASDP. But, you know, again, from a workplace standpoint, I'm always looking at is, is this person's behavior impairing their effectiveness? And I'll be... Um, it, it, this isn't necessarily negative temperament, you know, the way we think about it, that bully, that aggressive, oppositional, competitive personality. This could also be somebody who's too affiliative, too consensus driven, too nice. Certain roles aren't going to be, they're not going to be well suited for that if they have to drive conflict, if they have to drive a turnaround of a business, for example. So being too nice in a particular role or being too much of a people pleaser in a particular role may actually be a negative element of temperament that could impair you. But let's go back to your example of the bully. Uh, and so what bullies typically do is they're aggressive, uh, they yell, they're argumentative, they interrupt people, it, and their behavior feels disrespectful. And so what we teach our, our people managers, our leaders in the company, is that all four, well, I forgot to mention the fourth category. The fourth category is called accepts role requirements. Uh, every role has a set of obligations and demands. And it, basically, you need to make sure that the person's willing to accept those obligations and demands and that there's no reason, personal or otherwise, that would get in the way. So when you stand back and look at a talent, a leader, if that negative temperament, that bullying behavior is so extreme and there's a pattern, intensity, and frequency and it's impairing their effectiveness, that's when we coach our managers that we have to, we have to intervene. And, you know, so when the negative T, I always say, it's almost like the negative T becomes so big, it overshadows all the talent. And when that happens, the individual, you know, you hope the person can be self-aware and accept the feedback and take coaching and, and do some work on, on managing and mitigating some of those negative elements of their temperament. And in some cases they can't. So, you know, there, I could tell you lots of stories of the super talented people that unfortunately had this element of negative temperament um, that frankly just distracts people from how talented they are. And so that's essentially what we do from a people manager standpoint, from a leader standpoint, it's all about, can they be effective? And a lot of times the bullies are people that peers start excluding from meetings that's a warning symptom when their, their negative temperament starting to impair them. They start losing top talent. 
you know, there, there are lots of symptoms of, of when this becomes problematic. So I'll stop there because, uh, you know, yes, it can be fueled from, you know, the bully to be the protector from the past. But the reality is in the workplace, we're looking for the match between the person's suitability for the role. And if there's some negative element that's impairing them, then we have to intervene. Applied Materials is a 24,000 person global company, multiple time zones, cultural differences. Some people are are behind a desk. Some people are on site. Some people are in a manufacturing plant. How does all of what you just described play out in how you communicate with your teams, how you build this culture? Some people are sitting there ready to read your email. Some people aren't necessarily in front of a computer. How do you think about the communication and the culture building of all of this? Well, it's a really key question. And I know that uh, my peers and other companies, we think a lot about this and put a lot of emphasis on it. So from the standpoint of culture, obviously our companies often have a set of core values. So that's a key piece of the the culture. Um, And, you know, so when I think about a global company with people all over the world, I am always focused on inclusion. How, How do we build an inclusive environment where people feel valued, they feel like they matter, and they feel like they have equal and fair opportunity to uh, coaching, mentoring, development, advancement. And so I like to, you know, from my standpoint, create a very personal relationship with with the employees. It's not always a one-on-one relationship, obviously, with 24,000 people, um, but I want my messages and the messages of our colleagues very similar to send a message about how much people matter. I love doing people manager meetings where we just, we bring all of our people managers together. Now this will be in the U.S. Different parts of the world do similar things. And I've also done people manager meetings. We've got many of our employees are based in Asia Pacific, uh, but creating an opportunity where we can share information with our people managers so that they feel equipped to handle the questions that they're getting from their employees. And then we open it up to Q&A and, you know, I'll have a panel of people with me. It might be my colleague who is responsible for environmental health and safety as it relates to the pandemic. It it may be members of my HR leadership team so they can answer different questions about, uh, for example, return to campus. And we're actually, that's the focus of the discussion this week. And so that's key. I mean, we could talk a lot about inclusion. Um, That's a whole other topic. But um, for me, the communication is making it personal, connecting it to the company values and what matters most and doing everything we can to, to drive home how important our culture of inclusion is. I'm joined today by Susan Schmidt Winchester, She has an incredible new book. It's called Healing at Work, a guide to using career conflicts to overcome your past and build the future you deserve. Susan, what are some of the ways that people can best learn more about the book and and help uh, support you in buying the book? Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share that. You can find me on LinkedIn, Susan Schmidt Winchester on LinkedIn. And I also have a personal website, which is Susan J. Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T.com. And you can find out lots of details about the book right there. Susan, thank you again for the time and your wisdom today. If you like today's episode, you will love the next conversation with Ross Perich. Ross is the communications director at 5Tran. Thanks again for listening. And until next time with Ross Perich.